I suggested that you leave some space so that you have room to spread out the maps. As you can see, this is a lot of geography this evening. <clears throat> well, we begin with uh, chapter 45, which, as I indicated last time, I needed a little more time uh, to reflect. <clears throat> so here's what I think is going on with chapter 45. This is a chapter of narrative closure for Baruch, and it returns us to the chapter of narrative inception for Baruch. The issue then of the closure with respect to the story of Baruch raises the issue of the future of his life, and that is also present from its inception in the book of Jeremiah, which is chapter 32. Now, in chapter 32, which is dated 587 B.C., the 10th year of Zedekiah, we have that interesting scene in which Jeremiah is instructed to purchase a field in Anathoth as a symbolic reflection about the future, the future restoration of the exiles to the promised land. Now, standing alongside of him in that purchase of that land is Baruch, who records the deed and is a duplicate witness then of this transcendent (coughs) event of restoration after destruction. I emphasize that in chapter 32, Baruch stands alongside Jeremiah with respect to the symbolic promise of the future. The next time we see Baruch is in chapter 36. Now, this event is dated 605 B.C., which is the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. And here Baruch is writing the scroll of the Word of God at the dictation of Jeremiah. Now, that scroll is focusing particularly upon the destruction of Jerusalem, but, of course, there is also implied a record of the restoration of the people of God Uh, to the promises that God has granted them by his grace. And so in chapter 36, we have Baruch standing alongside of Jeremiah once again, this time receiving and recording the word of God, a word which anticipates the future of the restoration of the people of God. Now, last time we noticed that Baruch appears in chapter 43. That chapter is dated to 586, namely it is just shortly after the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and Baruch descends into Egypt along with Jeremiah. The destruction of uh, Jerusalem is behind them, and as they descend into Egypt, the prediction that Jeremiah makes is that this generation will be destroyed in Egypt because they had left the land of God's promise. This raises the question about the future. So in chapter 43, we have Baruch standing alongside Jeremiah, but descending with Jeremiah into Egypt in a land which is ostensibly cursed with death and not with life. Finally, chapter 45. And you'll notice that this chapter in verse 1 is dated to 605 again the fourth year of Jehoiakim. It therefore matches up with chapter 36 with respect to date, 
and uh, this chapter is full of God's assurance for the life of Baruch, which in verse 5 will be granted to him as booty. That is, his life will be preserved in the face of the, from 605, 20-year distant destruction of Jerusalem. Now notice that that phrase, life as booty, in verse 5, is also affirmed of Jeremiah in chapter 38, verse 2, and chapter 21, 21, verse 9. Jeremiah's life will be preserved as booty. So he will survive the destruction of Jerusalem, even as Baruch is assured that he will survive the destruction of Jerusalem, the future orientation then of God's assurance is underscored. Notice also verse 4 in this 45th chapter. The promise that God makes that he will tear down what he has built and also that he will uproot what he has planted. Now that language should resonate with you because it comes from verse 10 of chapter 1, namely the commission that was given to Jeremiah at the outset of his career that God would tear down what he had built up and he would uproot what he has planted. The promise for the future destruction of Jerusalem is given to both Baruch and Jeremiah and it is given to both of them in the very same words. Finally, verse 3. Baruch says, woe is me. Actually, the Hebrew is literally woe to me. And that echoes chapter 15, verse 10, where Jeremiah says exactly the same thing in Hebrew, woe to me. This is the language of lamentation. It is the language of sorrow. It is the language of weeping because of an ominous future. And that language is identical in the words of both Baruch and Jeremiah. What then do we conclude from the position of chapter 45? It is underscoring a relational identity, which is in fact a mirror relationship between Jeremiah and Baruch that has been unfolded in virtually every chapter in which the two of them appear, whether it's chapter 32, 36, 43, or 45. They appear as a virtual mirror reflection of one another. Their experience then of the prospect of the destruction of Jerusalem is duplicated in the existential reality of living through that destruction. They stand side by side as Jerusalem is burned and destroyed. Their experience of the word of God with its prophetic declarations of judgment and restoration is also duplicated in existential reality. They live through the fulfillment of the word of God the existential experience of destruction around them were their lives preserved, their lives given them as booty, their lives going on into an open-ended future. Their tangible testimony to the future restoration of captive Judah to the land of their fathers is duplicated in their mutual experience of the purchase and recording of the purchase of the field in Anatoth. They stand side by side, oriented to the future of the restoration of the land. And together they descend into Egypt, as if to doubly assure us of their prospects beyond the land of bondage. 
Jeremiah records a mirror-like chapter, verse chapter 45, which conforms both Baruch and himself to the expectation of a future exodus, an exodus in which their lives will be preserved on that day when out of Egypt have I called my son, will echo and re-echo for Baruch and for Jeremiah in the Israel of God at the end of the age. The capstone of chapter 45 is sequential to the capstone of chapter 44. The narrative closure of the life of Jeremiah descending into Egypt is matched by the life of Baruch descending into Egypt. And the point is that if, in fact, this is a descent into the land of bondage, the future prospect, which we've noted, which is peculiar to almost every occurrence of the life of Baruch and Jeremiah, the future prospect is with respect to an emergence from that exodus in the land of bondage. The only way that can occur is when Jesus himself goes down into Egypt and comes out as the embodiment of that very future restoration, that future exodus, that future eschatological redemption and assurance that folds into itself the drama of what anticipated it, namely the descent into Egypt by Jeremiah and Baruch. That is my proposal for why chapter 45 is where it is, and therefore uh, my justification that is not out of place, that it forms a capstone to the closure of the narrative of these two indelibly linked lives, the link of Jeremiah and his amanuensis, the recorder of the word of God upon the scrolls that he copied at the dictation of the prophet of the Lord. All right, now, uh, we have a good bit of ground to cover this evening, so let's begin with the uh, outline on the handout from the macro structure of chapters 46 to 51. We will not be able to cover all of this tonight, but I want you to notice the paradigm that is outlined there. We have a a type of language which appears uh, only in four places in these uh, chapters, Uh, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah, the word of the Lord through Jeremiah. And you'll notice that it occurs in 46.1, 47.1, 47.34, and 50 verse 1. Now, notice, if you will, that it begins in 46.1 with one of the major world powers of the ancient Near East in Jeremiah's day, namely Egypt. It concludes in chapter 50, verse 1, with the other major world power in the ancient Near East in Jeremiah's day, Babylon. And both of those world powers, the first and the last, Egypt and Babylon, are powers which interfaced with Judah during the days of Jeremiah, the prophet of the Lord. So at the beginning and the end of this judgment section are the two major world dominators who interface with the life and times of Jeremiah and with the prophetic revelation of the word of God. That's the reason they stand first and last in this section. Now, second, you will notice that the, that the next element, the next nation after Egypt is Philistia or the Philistines. And you also notice that the nation before Babylon is Elam. Those two countries are contiguous to the nations that precede them. In other words, 
The Philistines are contiguous to Egypt. Elam is contiguous to Babylon. So it's as if he has sandwiched in between uh, the other uh, nations that are from 48.1 to 49.28. He has sandwiched them in relationship to the world power and that nation which is contiguous or nearby neighbor to it. And that occurs at the beginning and also at the end. Well, then what do we do with what's in between? Or in between Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, and Hatzor. What do we do with those? <clears throat> they are all Transjordanian nations. They are all on the east side of the Jordan River. So they are arraigned or aligned in terms of their geography. <clears throat> in other words, the macro structure deals with the geography of Egypt and its contiguous neighbor. It ends with Babylon and its contiguous neighbor, and in between the, shall we say, the neighbors of Israel to the east in the Transjordanian region, also the neighbors in between who were, shall we say, like irritants to the nation of Israel and Judah down through their history. Now we have time to enlarge upon this as we proceed. But we'll notice uh, as we go on this evening that there is a a small structure in chapter 46, uh, namely a repetitive uh, phrase or title, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which occurs in verses 2, 13, and 26. All right, now this uh, chapter is actually dated. Uh, In verse 2, it says, uh, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning the army of Pharaoh Necho, which was by the river Euphrates at Carchemish, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, defeated him in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah. And what date would that be? 605. All right, so this event is specifically dated to 605, fourth year of Jehoiakim. And you will notice it's dated on the basis of a campaign uh, of Nebuchadnezzar uh, and uh, Nico at Carchemish. Now, if you'll take your map, uh, map number two and three, it'd be the first map in your packet. We have uh, maps number 159 and 160 from the Carta Bible Atlas which describe the first and second campaigns of Pharaoh Nico to Carchemish, the first in 609, which is on the left-hand side, when uh, Josiah was killed at at Megiddo, and Nico went to Carchemish, was defeated by the Babylonians, and on his way back uh, disenthroned Jehoahaz, who was installed after his father's death, and installed Jehoiakim as king in Jerusalem. But the text in chapter 46, verse 2, is specifically referring to the second campaign of Nico, which is the right-hand map, which occurred in 605 when Nico once again went up to Carchemish to meet uh, the Babylonian threat uh, from Nebuchadnezzar and uh, and the uh, Babylonian Empire. Uh, Now, Carchemish uh, is in the news. Uh, It's in the news for a couple of reasons. There's been a marvelous rediscovery of ancient remains at Carchemish, and I've given you a couple of websites where you can see that. Uh, This is the resumption of work which was started before the First World War. In fact, in 1913, by T.E. Lawrence, 
and Sir Leonard Woolley. Now, who is T.E. Lawrence? Art? He is Lawrence of Arabia. That is correct. T.E. Lawrence in 1913 in one of these websites is pictured standing beside Sir Leonard Woolley at Carchemish in 1913. So he was involved in the excavation of Carchemish before the First World War, uh, put that uh, uh, on hold. And it has only been recently resumed until the Syrian war today when they were bombarding the Turkish border in that region and they had to stop excavating again. That just happened last fall. So you can take a look at these websites and see what's going on. Uh, But this site is now uh, potentially being opened up once again. Now, uh, what's the significance of it? It was a major Hittite city. In the uh, second millennium B.C., uh, it was part of the Hittite Empire, even though it is uh, there in uh, northern Syria, what is northern Syria today, and was extremely important for the discovery of Hittite, uh, the Hittite Empire, important for the discovery of what are called ancient Near Eastern treaty patterns. All right, now, in our uh, text... Uh, We ask the question of uh, verse 2, why begin the judgment of these oracles, these oracles of judgment, why begin with Egypt? Well, obviously Egypt is a long-time antagonist of Israel. She is the initial antagonist in uh, Jeremiah's day. Uh, She is the one who uh, makes incursions Obviously, uh, Nico passing through Israel twice and one, uh, on one occasion killing Israel or Judah's king and on the second occasion uh, uh, passing through with his mighty, mighty army, uh, which of course would uh, have devastated the land to a certain extent. But long, more long term than simply the immediacy of the, of the 7th century B.C., is this uh, uh, ongoing hostility of Egypt to Israel and Judah. She has been a thorn in the side of the people of God ever since the days of the Exodus. All right, now I didn't make a comment on verse 1 and that word nations, but if you notice that this is the beginning of Jeremiah's oracles against the nations, this was part of his commission in verse 5 of chapter 1. So we are returning at the end of the book to the initial commission of the prophet. That is, that he would not only pronounce the word of God against Judah and Jerusalem, but that he will pronounce the word of God in judgment against the nations. This is an exercise of God's sovereignty. It remains an exercise of God's sovereignty. God will judge the nations. He will judge the nations in this world, in this era. He will not judge the nations before the great white throne. Nations will not stand before his judgment seat at the return of Christ. Judgment judgment will be distributed upon nations in this world. And and also, uh, this is a... Uh, illustration or demonstration of God's retributive justice. Insofar as the nations of the world have raised their hands against the people of God, God will return evil for evil upon them. Namely, he will judge them for uh, afflicting his church. 
And consequently, uh, that ongoing pattern continues to repeat itself through history. It is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of the living God, an extremely dangerous thing to raise your hand in persecution against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those matters will be settled. Uh, They will be settled through tribulation and turmoil. They may be settled through great suffering and persecution. But God will settle them. And he puts this principle in place here in the book of Jeremiah where he indicates he's going to deal with Egypt because of all the evil that they have done against against his own name and against uh, the people of God. For when you attack the people of God, when you attack the sincere believers of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not attacking the church. You're attacking God himself. He will defend his own name. He will defend his own honor. He will, in fact, render unto, uh, unto nations that which is due to them for the evil of their deeds. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> we understand what the date of this event is in verse 2. We understand <clears throat> that... Uh, <clears throat> And that it is a, a pivotal event in terms of Nico's attempt to reassert Egypt's power in the Levant or in the Middle East beyond the borders of the buffer state which Judah has been. <clears throat> Ever since 609, when he unseated Jehoahaz and put Jehoiakim on the throne, Nico has controlled Judah. He has controlled Jerusalem. It's been a puppet kingdom to his whim. And one of the reasons he wanted that kingdom under his control was because he needed a buffer. He needed a kind of neutral territory or at least a little bit of a cushion between himself and Babylon. He had been defeated in 609 at Carchemish. He knew the might of Babylon because he'd felt it in battle. He wanted something between him and that power. So he had, he had placed his puppet king in, Ju- in Jerusalem in order to keep that little cushion between them. Now, in 605... He's decided that it's time to try to reassert his own Egyptian power beyond the buffer state. So in 605, he once again goes up the coast to Carchemish to meet Babylon and the crown prince, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who will be king of Babylon within a year. And he is absolutely decimated. In fact, he is decimated so badly that Nebuchadnezzar chases him back towards Egypt. And on his way back, Nebuchadnezzar stops off in Jerusalem to lay siege for the first time. That's when he takes away Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And while he is involved in besieging Jerusalem, he is told that his father, Nabopolassar, has died. And so he relieves, he leaves off the siege of Jerusalem and he runs back to Babylon in order to seize the hands of the god Bel, who is the chief god of the pantheon of Babylon and become the king of Babylon before somebody else can usurp the position while he's off on the battlefield. He then returns, and you'll notice in this map, number three, he then returns within a year to lay siege to Ashkelon on the coast of Philistia. So we'll come back to this event later on, but there's your sequence. Okay, Nico goes up in 605. He is, he is bested, in fact, he is thrashed, and he is chased by Nebuchadnezzar back towards Egypt. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem, carries off Jewish captives, namely Daniel and others. Then he himself runs back to Babylon to be crowned king. He returns then within a year to lay siege to the Philistine city of Ashkelon in 604. Now Babylon controls the Levant. 
Now Babylon controls Judah and Jerusalem. Now Babylon controls the Middle East. Egypt will never again assert its power in the Middle East within the biblical period. Within the intertestamental period, there'll be the the, uh, conflicts between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, which is detailed in Daniel chapter 11. But nonetheless, Egypt, not within this biblical period, will uh, control uh, any part of the Middle East, including Palestine and, and Israel. All right, now, um, verse 6 reinforces what we have indicated in, uh, cha- in verse 2, but it does it with uh, particularly graphic poetry. This is, in fact, quite beautiful poetry. It's some of the best poetry in the Bible, as a matter of fact. As many scholars have noted, it's even better than some of the lines in the Psalter. But uh, in any event, the imagery here is quite graphic. You will notice that the call to line up the shield, harness the horses, mount the steeds, is a call which is uttered to the Egyptian troops. But it brings them uh, terror, verse 5. It brings them a fear on every side. So it galvanizes them, even though it's uh, poetically powerful, it galvanizes the Egyptian troops under Nico's authority or command with terror and fear. And that certainly is what Nebuchadnezzar put into them when he drove them out of Carchemish in 605 and chased them back down towards Egypt. Now in verses 7 and 8, we have a simile. What's a simile? Yes, to say something is like good season. Now, you'll notice in 7 and 8, who is it that rises like the Nile? Who is it that rises like the Nile? Yes, it's the Egyptian troops. Now, what's the imagery behind this rising like the Nile? What's the point of saying the Nile rises? Once a year it floods over over because of the rains coming from Central Africa, which flow up towards the Mediterranean. And when it overflows its bounds or its banks, what happens, Ben? The land of the whole valley there, fertile. Yes, very fertile because of all this rich silt that's come down from Central Africa and it just poured out into the fields. So it's a very lush uh, uh, agricultural area along the banks of the Nile. So this image is adopted here to the troops rising up out of Egypt to fight against Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Now, if you'll take the next map, maps number 14 and 15 from the Carta Bible Atlas catalog of maps, we notice in verses 9, verse 9, that Ethiopia or Kush is mentioned depending upon your translation and Put and Ludim which is translated in some versions Lydians now uh, who are these folk well Ethiopia is not too difficult for us or Kush is not too difficult for us and you can see on your map uh, number 15 you can see the location of Kush is modern-day Sudan and down into Ethiopia. Now, on that map, number 15, you'll see to the west of Egypt, Put. 
What country would that be today? Libya. Libya. That is modern-day Libya, called in this in the ancient world Put. But what about the Ludim? The Hebrew text here is Ludim. Some of you may have Lydians. <clears throat> you see on map, uh, map number 15 where they are? Just hiding a little bit there. If you look at modern-day Turkey and the northwestern corner. You see L-U-D there? All right, now, <clears throat> that's actually the ancient kingdom of Lydia. So that's the reason you have a translation in some of your versions that uh, the uh, allies here with the Egyptians include the Lydians. Now, <clears throat> obviously, Nico has in his army some black Africans from Kush, Sudan, and Ethiopia. <clears throat> he has some North Africans from uh, modern-day Libya, or Put, and he also has some Lydians, and they are Greeks. They are Greek mercenaries. How would the Egyptians have come to use Greek mercenaries? Well, actually, about 50 years before this battle, Semeticus I, or Somtic I, the pharaoh of Egypt, hired Greek mercenaries from Lydia. He hired them to come and help him patrol his coastline. What was happening to the Egyptian coastline? It was being invaded and looted by pirates. And consequently, uh, Somtik I hired these Greek mercenaries to uh, defend his coastline, uh, partly because of their skill and partly because of their ability to uh, move surreptitiously and quietly. <clears throat> so that's how the uh, Lydians had come into the service of the Egyptian army and are <clears throat> included uh, in this uh, catalog here in verse 9. Verse 10. The day of the Lord is a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. Now, in general, he's going to avenge himself on Egypt, which is his foe. But why? <clears throat> avenge himself for what? What specifically is God taking vengeance for? We can say the broad pattern of Egyptian hostility down through the Old Testament history. We can say that that's true. That's a generic, generic uh, truth. <clears throat> Is there any particular reason for God taking vengeance on Egypt in this uh, catalog, in this chapter? Idols? Idols? Mm, I'll, I'll make that, that's a good suggestion, I'll make that a more general statement, okay? Egypt is an idolatrous nation, he's going to take vengeance on it for that. Anything more immediate? <clears throat> what had Nico done? What did he done in 609? He's on his way up to Car Commission 609, and what does he do at Megiddo? Oh, he kills Josiah. Josiah. So is God taking vengeance for the death of Josiah? Quite possibly, okay? Possibly he's taking vengeance for that. What other possibility? The other possibility is what happens when Nico comes back in 609. Namely, he, refer, he removes the rightful king of Israel or Judah, and he replaces him with his own puppet. So in other words, he acts as if he is the lord of the land. 
And so God is going to take vengeance on him for that. These are the more proximate rather than the remote or broad uh, issues in uh, God's taking vengeance, but all of them uh, coalesce. I'm not saying that that the former outweighs the uh, latter, but uh, but I think uh, as we're thinking of what happens with respect to Carchemish, some that is perhaps more prominently in Jeremiah's mind. Now, in verse 11, it talks about go up to Gilead and obtain balm. Does that remind you of a very famous line? All of you who know. Is there a bomb of Gilead? What kind of a song is that? What kind of a song is that? Is that a type of is that a type of genre of Christian song? It is. It is. <laughs> Who sings it? Where did it come from? Well, it came from Jeremiah. And he comes from Jeremiah. Who got it from Jeremiah and turned it into a song? Oh, yeah, I don't know. Susan? I have no idea. Robert? I have no idea. Okay. Loretta? It's a what? There is a balm in here. I know. It's a what? I can't think of the word. It's a Negro spiritual. Yeah. Yeah, she comes out. It comes out of the slave, back slave experience in the South in the 19th century. Okay. All right. So that's in chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, here, there is no, no balm in uh, Gilead that will heal. Now, the play here is the irony of the healing balms of Gilead. Where's Gilead? Gilead is on the east side of the Jordan, in between Ammon and Moab. So it's in the territory of what was called Gad, the tribe of Gad, you can see it on one of our later maps, and so when you look at that map, you remember, well, that's the tribe of Gad there, but that was uh, Gilead. <clears throat> so it was a, uh, a region which had these kind of high plateaus where trees, which produced a very aromatic resin, uh, <clears throat> would seep out of the trunk just like maple syrup seeps out, and sometimes you see uh, resin seeping out of pine trees, etc., and they would collect it, and then they would mix it with oils and turn it into perfume and so on and so forth. It was very famous, very expensive, and much sought after because it also had medicinal properties. Well, notice in verse 11 that the medicinal properties of the balm of Gilead is going to do no good to heal the diseases of Egypt. Now, the irony here is, is that Egyptian medicine was sought all over the ancient world. In other words, Egypt had a great deal of remedies that had been perfected. You know, the type of uh, insight, the type of science, I'll use the term loosely, which led them to embalm mummies and to preserve them. And, you know, 3,000 years are preserved, etc. So they had this great skill in understanding how you could mix up these combination of herbs and so on and actually preserve human flesh, or at least preserve the, the, the hide or the leather of human flesh over centuries of, uh, of uh, desiccation. <clears throat> All right. So the, the point here is 
that there are no remedies, not in Gilead and its healing balm, nor are there any remedies in the medicines of Egypt. In other words, there's no medicine that your own uh, uh, physicians are going to use, and there's no medicine that it can be bought internationally and shipped in. You know, whether it was Amazon in those days, they didn't know. They brought it down by camel caravan. So uh, the point is, God is going to remove any potential healing benefit whether it's at a distance or whether it's locally from the local Egyptian physician. Which brings us to verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, coming to smite the land of Egypt. Now, when did this happen? Last week you recall that we said that in 568 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar did invade Egypt, not with a punitive campaign, uh, not with an occupational campaign, but with a punitive campaign. He came to discipline probably Pharaoh Aprius or Pharaoh Hophra for meddling in international affairs, particularly affairs of Asia, meaning the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Now, there is no firm record of that, but uh, there is some suggestion of it in uh, in the chronicle. So it's possible that that's what Jeremiah is referring to. The other possibility is something uh, that occurs in 601. Now, it's not uh, described on any of your maps, but if you go back to map number two, Actually, take map number three. You'll notice the uh, brook of Egypt on that map. Now, the brook of Egypt is not really a brook. It's a dry wash. It's a wadi. It's only full of water in the rain season. But it is a, a, a place where water rushes to the Mediterranean out of the Sinai, north part of the Sinai Peninsula. <clears throat> At this spot in 601... The army of Nebuchadnezzar was present and retreated. It had met the army of Pharaoh Necho and had been fought to a standstill, fought to a draw. How do we know this happened? Because Nebuchadnezzar records the fact that he had gone to Egypt in 601. But the next thing in that chronicle is that he was back in Babylon refitting his army. Now, the only reason he'd be refitting his army is if he had not been able to defeat Nico in 601 at the Brook of Egypt. Namely, Nico and the Egyptians fought him to a standstill. So, is this the reference to uh, Nebuchadnezzar attacking uh, and smiting the land of Egypt in verse 13? Well, it's not quite the force of smiting, but he attempted to do it. So it is conceivable that this event may be in in Jeremiah's mind, more likely that it is the 568 event, but we're not absolutely sure because we don't have any confirmation from within Scripture of the fulfillment of it, which doesn't mean that it isn't fulfilled. We're looking elsewhere, like for archaeological evidence. We've talked about the Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings, which translate Nebuchadnezzar's record as king, but there's no reference to a, to a uh, conquest there, uh, except, uh, except the meeting in 601, which is the last meeting that the Chronicles record between Nebuchadnezzar and Egypt. 
All right, now in verse 14, we have the cities of Migdal, Memphis, and Tapanes, uh, which we saw last week in map number 164 of the Carta uh, Bible Atlas. And you see those uh, cities once again uh, on the map that is in your packet. Verse 15. A New American Standard translates this verse, Why have your mighty ones become prostrate? Do any of you have any different uh, translation for mighty ones? Warriors. Thank you. Anybody else? Anything different? I have valiant men. Fifteen and fifteen. Valiant men. Valiant men. Okay. No one has bulls. Bulls. Okay. The best translation here is, in fact, the word bulls. That is a male cow, because this is a reference to the sacred cult of the apis. God, the Apis Bull, A-P-I-S. Now in verse 20, we'll reinforce that translation. If you'll notice, Egypt is a pretty heifer. Egypt is a pretty heifer. Now, this is referring to a god, a god which was worshipped in the form of a bull in the city of Memphis. That god was called Apis. There was a bull which was selected, <clears throat> and was paraded around the city, uh, treated like a god, and worshipped like a god. And it was regarded as the incarnation of the creator god of Egyptian mythology, namely the god Ta, spelled P-T-A-H. Ta was the incarnation, was incarnated in this bull. So, the uh, significance then of verse 15 is a a ridicule of the apis cult. God has thrust them down. God has has, uh, destroyed this cult or placed it under his judgment. The sacred bull is going to be cast down. And in verse 16, all that during the regime or during the reign of Pharaoh Loudmouth or Pharaoh bag of noise, or Pharaoh whatever your versions may have. In other words, someone who is simply shooting off his mouth and cannot deliver. Now, who may Jeremiah have in mind, or who may the Lord through Jeremiah have in mind? It is possible that Nico is in view here. It would be uh, that Nico could not deliver on his uh, conquest of Carchemish. And so he simply made a big noise about withstanding or opposing the Babylonians. And two times he got himself thrashed and trashed. But there's also a possibility that this is a reference to Pharaoh Hophra, who was mentioned up in chapter 44, verse 30. That Pharaoh, you may recall, could not back up his boast to aid Jerusalem when Jerusalem came under siege by Nebuchadnezzar in 587-586. You recall we talked when we talked about that 37th chapter about how Nebuchadnezzar had lifted the siege of Jerusalem in order to meet a threat coming out of Egypt. 
when he advanced to the south to encounter that threat coming from Hophra and the troops of Egypt coming north, he uh, turned, he caused Hophra to retreat. There was no battle between the Egyptians and the Babylonians at that point, but the siege of Jerusalem was lifted long enough probably for Jeremiah to conclude this transaction about the sale of the field at Anathoth. In any event, it is conceivable that Hophra here is in view with this comment about King Loudmouth. That is, Hophra was simply a bag of wind. He was uh, he wanted to be considered an ally of Judah against Babylon. He even marched his army out across the Sinai Desert to meet the Babylonian threat. And when the Babylonians showed up, he turned tail and ran. So he just uh, he just full of noise, full of hot air. He can't back up his uh, his uh, his commitment. All right, that's in chapter 37, verses 5 and 6. If you need to make a note about uh, where that occurs, uh, we discussed that when we went over that chapter. All right, now to verse 18. The Lord of hosts looms up like Tabor and like Carmel by the sea. Now let's take a look at the location of those uh, two mountains, Mount Tabor and Mount Carmel, uh, map 71 from the Carter Bible Atlas. And you'll notice Mount Carmel on the horn uh, there of uh, Palestine, just uh, below the T and Great Sea. What happened at Mount Carmel that you remember? Okay. Prophets of Baal. Yes, Elijah and the prophets of Baal on this mountain, which is about 1,700 feet above the coastal plain of the Mediterranean. So it's not a very tall mountain by our Olympic and Cascade standards, but it is tall in terms of Middle Eastern standards. Now, the other mountain, Tabor, if you look directly east or to the right of Carmel, you'll find it. It's in smaller print uh, just below Helef. And the plain of Jezreel. Do you find it on the map? Okay, we're on map number 71. Did you find it? Okay, now notice where Carmel is near the T and Great Sea. The Great Seas of Mediterranean. Okay, now this look to the right, and you'll see in smaller print Mount Tabor. Underneath Helef. Almost straight line due east from find it? Okay. Now Tabor is actually taller. It's eighteen hundred feet tall, rises above the plain of Jezreel. What happened at Tabor? And that's where Deborah and Barak met Sisera. And the rains or the floods came down to Bor. In other words, it probably was a cloudburst that flooded the valley at the base of Tabor and bogged down the iron chariots of Sisera and caused the uh, children of Israel to triumph there. And, of course, 
uh, Deborah sings her triumph song in Judges chapter 5. All right. Well, uh, God is going to loom up like these mountains. And, of course, if you... If you've lived on the plains of Kansas and you come to a 1,800 foot tall mountain, that that looks like a giant mountain. Uh, I lived in Western Pennsylvania. We had 3,000 foot mountains in the Appalachian Range, and we thought those were huge until I saw the Rockies, and then until I saw Yosemite and the Sierras. <laughs> so, all right, so you realize that those are those are really kind of low-lying hills. It's the same type of thing here, but if you live in that culture and you see 1,800 feet looming up above the plain, you know, that's a pretty big hill. So uh, that's, the, uh, that's the context of the imagery here. All right, uh, verse 25. God is going to punish Ammon of Thebes. Now, uh, this will take us back to map number 164, which was the map that showed the flight into Egypt. And if you'll notice, you'll see no Ammon on that map, which is what Jeremiah is describing, Ammon of Thebes. Thebes was called No. You'll find that in the book of Nahum, chapter 3, verse 8 as well. And the word no here means city, <clears throat> city of Ammon. <clears throat> so Ammon of Thebes in Jeremiah 46, 25 could also have been rendered no Ammon, and you see its location there. That's modern-day Luxor, incidentally, in Egypt. What about Ammon of Thebes? Well, Ammon of Thebes is a god. It is the god Ammon, who was the... Uh, god of fertility, the local god of that city, and he became merged with Ra, the Egyptian sun god. So the cult of Amun-Ra okay, was elevated uh, in the Egyptian uh, idolatry, uh, <clears throat> whereas, where Amun-Ra was the god of warmth, sun god, also <clears throat> the god of fertility. And so God here is indicating that he's going to punish Thebes for its idolatry, its worshiping uh, the sun. The event uh, which is recorded here or projected is unknown. We do not know uh, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, raised his hand against, uh, the, uh, against Thebes and against the gods of the city of Thebes, uh, it is conceivable it happened in that 568 punitive raid, but there's no record of it. We're not saying it didn't happen. We just don't know. We don't have a concrete uh, <clears throat> event or historical document to show us when it occurred. Now, finally, before our break, verses 27 and 28 of this 46th chapter are precisely parallel with chapter 30, verses 10 and 11. Jeremiah 30 is in the key central eschatological portion of the book. Chapters 30 to 33 are that rich and wonderful eschatological language of the future of the new covenant and the loving kindness of God, which will not be taken away. So here we have a, another instance of a parallel duplication, a duplication which reminds us 
of the wonderful eschatological projection and future for the people of God. Notice verse 28, I am with you, be not dismayed. There is the Emmanuel promise of the Old Testament projected into the future, a promise which we know in the person of Emmanuel, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, even in the midst of this judgment imagery against Egypt, God remembers his mercy and his grace to his people. He will save us from near and far. And on that note, we will take a break and we'll come back to to resume with Philistia in chapter 47. Map number 104 in the Carta Bible Atlas and Jeremiah 47. We can date this chapter to sometime before 604 B.C. You'll recall that I had you look uh, earlier at that uh, 605 invasion of Palestine by Nico when he went up to Carchemish and I showed you that Nebuchadnezzar had come to Ashkelon in 604. So uh, this broad uh, uh, context of uh, Nebuchadnezzar attacking uh, the Philistines at Ashkelon and potentially Gaza uh, could have happened sometime uh, before 604, what could have been prophesied sometime before 604. All right, now I have some uh, options here about when uh, Pharaoh, uh, excuse me, I mean when Pharaoh conquered Gaza, when Pharaoh conquered Gaza, uh, namely in 605 on his way north, the second time he may have passed by Gaza and plundered it, that would have been Nico himself. Uh, Then in the clash that I mentioned, not 604, but 601, at the Brook of Egypt, which is on that map 104 there in the extreme left-hand side, when he had that clash with Nebuchadnezzar and it ended up in a draw that Nico may have gone on into Pal- uh, Philistia uh, to Gaza, along the Gaza Strip and uh, plundered uh, Gaza. The third option is that we simply do not know when this happened. Again, it's not as if the prophecy is inaccurate. We just don't have an historical uh, uh, event which is recorded somewhere uh, which indicates that it was accomplished. Nonetheless, we turn our attention now to the Philistines, uh, who in verse 2 are going to endure waters rising from the north. Now, those waters are not from the Pharaoh that's conquering Gaza. Uh, Those waters are from Babylon, from the Babylonian army, which comes down from the north and are going to overflow. I think that is a direct reference to the 604 incident, namely when Nebuchadnezzar attacks Ashkelon and plunders it. And along uh, with uh, the the city of Gaza, in verse 4, Tyre and Zidon mentioned. Now, on map 104, you can see Tyre and Zidon up the coast north of uh, Mount Carmel. If you see where Mount Carmel is, and you remember where it is in that little horn, that little hook that's below Akko, and you go north along the coast to Tyre and Zidon. Tyre and Zidon were cities of the Phoenicians. 
Now, why would they be mentioned along with a chapter dealing with the Philistines? <clears throat> well, because of that other word in verse 4, <clears throat> the word kaftor. Now, now you take your other map, which is map number 66 <clears throat> of the Carta Bible Atlas, and you'll see the location of kaftor. And a connection which we will make between the listing of Kaftor and Tyre and Zidon. Kaftor is modern day what? Those of you that know your Mediterranean geography. Well, let's start with the easier one. What's Ali Shah today? That's where the government wants to take your bank account and withdraw from it. What country is that? Crete. Crete? No. Cyprus. Correct. Cyprus. All right. So what's Koftor? Robert? What's What's Koftor? You see Koftor on the map? Anyone, what's Koftor? I want to say Cyprus. That's Crete. That's Crete. Okay. So Koftor is Crete. Ali Shah on the map is Cyprus. Now, what are all these arrows for? These arrows represent a great migration of what are called the Sea Peoples, which occurred around 1200 B.C. What else happened in 1200 B.C.? The fall of Troy. You see Troy up there uh, in the upper left-hand corner of the map? The Trojan War was fought about 1200 B.C., and it's part of a large international convulsion. And these arrows represent what happens as a result of the Trojan War and other contiguous events, namely the mass migration of people moving out of the Greek Peloponnesus, out of Western Asia Minor, Troy, and other places, and they're moving to the east. They're trying to get away, trying to get away from war. They're trying to get away from conflict. They're trying to get away from violence. They're trying to get away from instability. And they're moving and sailing towards the Philistine, to the Palestinian coast. They're trying to sail into Egypt as well. Now, these groups land on the west coast of the Levant, all the way from Ugarit, which is up in the Phoenician region, down to Zidon, down to Gaza, and even try to enter into Egypt. This is the coming of the Philistines, because the Kaftorim, as they're called in the Hebrew Bible, originated in, the Philistines originated in Kaftor, as Amos chapter 9, verse 7 tells you. All right, so we associate then the Philistines with this mass migration of people, which also includes people landing in Phoenicia, Tyre and Zidon, along the coast. All right, now what is common to these people? They are comfortable in the sea, and the Phoenicians become the greatest seamen of the ancient world, the greatest merchant marine uh, force of the ancient world, the greatest traders of the ancient world. 
In fact, there are some like myself who believe that the Phoenicians had sailed out through the Straits of Gibraltar on the west side of North Africa and had actually circumnavigated the whole Horn of Africa long, long before Magellan or anybody else ever went around it. And the reason for that is partly from the Bible and partly from the remains that have been left in ruins and so on along the coast of Africa. The the Bible uh, text is that Solomon got his gold from Ophir once a year, delivered by the Phoenician Navy. Well, how would it take you a year to get gold from Ophir, which is the Horn of Africa, modern-day Somalia? All you'd have to do is do it, get it across the Red Sea and then put it on camels and walk it up to Jerusalem. That wouldn't take a year. But if you had to put it on a boat and sail all the way around the Horn of Africa, around South Africa, and up the other side, and then come into the Mediterranean, okay? That would take you a year. So it's perfectly possible that the Phoenicians bringing uh, the gold of Ophir to Solomon were circumnavigating Africa. Then the other indication is the, is the archaeological evidence that the Phoenicians actually had left markings and runes and other things along the coast of Africa uh, as, long, as old as perhaps 1,000 B.C., well, in any event, that's a, that's a larger part of this uh, small note here about the connection between the Tyre and Zidon Phoenicians and the Philistines. They're seagoing people. They have sea in their blood. They come from these migration of these sea peoples that you see mapped out on this uh, on this one map, uh, which was uh, tied in to the fall of Troy. The fall of Troy was like an earthquake. It sent waves all across the Mediterranean world. It's not just a, it's not a mythical story. It's a story based on fact. It's a mythical elaboration of the story and the heroes and so on. But nonetheless, it's based upon historical fact as Schliemann found out when he dug down at the end of the 19th and early 20th century to find its remains. All right, now, um, verse 5. What's this word baldness referring to? Baldness has come upon Gaza. They don't have any Rogaine or something? <laughs> this is a sign of mourning. Exactly. A sign of mourning because the city has been destroyed. Ashkelon has been ruined. I think this is a direct reference to 604, which you recall you saw on map number three earlier this evening, Nebuchadnezzar's siege and destruction of Ascalon. And also the fact that there's uh, a possible reflection upon this siege and destruction of Ascalon uh, in uh, the reign of Jehoiakim in chapter 36, verses 6 and 7 of, of Jeremiah. Uh, you may recall that Jehoiakim declared a fast and asked the people of Jerusalem, as well as Jeremiah, to call upon the Lord. Now, why would he be doing that in 605-604? Not because Nebuchadnezzar hadn't already campaigned and taken Daniel away, but because Nebuchadnezzar was back at the gates of Ashkelon and Jehoiakim wanted God to keep him away from Jerusalem again. So in other words, this is possibly a context for that fast that Jehoiakim declared because Ashkelon was uh, mourning and had been ruined in 604 by Nebuchadnezzar. 
All right, now that brings us to chapter 48, which deals with Moab. And a date probably before 604 and definitely before 594 B.C. because in Jeremiah 27, verse 3, we have a conference in Jerusalem in which the Moabites, the Edomites, the Ammonites, and others have come to join Zedekiah in a deliberate rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> All right, so notice the little chiastic structure which brackets this chapter. Uh, <clears throat> Moab, woe. And woe to Moab, uh, framing the uh, entire chapter. All right, now we'll uh, take a look at the uh, first verse, which mentions uh, Nebo and Kirathaim. And as you take map number 128 from the Carta Bible Atlas, you'll notice two things. <clears throat> you have a map, extensive map of Moab on the east side of the Dead Sea. And you also have a description of the so-called Moabite stone or the Misha Stila, which came from Dibon, the capital of the Moabite nation. I'll talk a little more about the Moabite stone, but I wanted you to see a picture of it, and that's the reason I copied the entire page for you, not just the map. This city that's mentioned in verse 1 this city of Nebo should not be confused with Mount Nebo, from which Moses beheld the promised land before he died. If you notice your map, number 128, up at the top of the map on the right-hand side, you'll see Nebo with a little star below it, just below Heshbon. Okay, it is a, it's the, this is the projection of where they think the city was located. Uh, it's not been uh, finally identified, but it is also mentioned in this Moabite stone that you have pictured there. You have a little description above the stone of what that stone's all about. Now, that Moabite stone was discovered in 1868, and it was the first piece of actually Moabite language. You can see the funny little scrawl on it. It kind of looks like ancient Hebrew in some ways. So because people could read Hebrew, they could make out what was going on in this stone, even though it's not actually Hebrew. It is Semitic language, but it's not actually Hebrew. And it mentions a king named Misha, who was also mentioned in the Bible in 2 Kings 3, verses 4 and 5. So the stone was very spectacular when it was discovered because here was another confirmation of a biblical name and actually it was giving some background to what was going on in the conflict between Israel and Misha in 2 Kings chapter 3. Now this verse also mentions Kiriathayim. It says it has been put to shame. Uh, there are those that want to identify it with Kiriathen, and you'll see that just below Nebo. And according to Josephus, not according to the Bible, but according to Josephus and not according to the Babylonian Chronicle, Nebuchadnezzar actually conquered uh, Kiriathen or Kiriathaim in 582 B.C. <clears throat> so if we can credit Josephus, we can date the fulfillment of this prophecy to 582 B.C. All right, you'll notice Heshbon uh, uh, above Nebo, which is uh, uh, in verse 2. The madmen here 
in verse 2, are uh, uh, residents of the city of Moab. It's a way of describing uh, them with a pejorative. Uh, down to, in verse 3, we have the city of Horonaim. Now on your map, you look down uh, south, way to the south of Moab, <clears throat> just above the Zered Brook, and you'll see Horonaim, which is in the southern region of the country. And then in verse 5, the ascent of Luhith and the descent of Haronaim. Now, no one has identified Luhith. The place is unknown. But notice the contrast. Notice, notice the ascent and descent language. All right, if that is true and Haronaim is in the south and you descend to go to Haronaim, Haronaim where would you ascend? It's likely that Luhith was in the north of Moab, uh, <clears throat> even though it, there's no location uh, that we know for sure. Uh, I think if anybody were looking for it, they would be looking in the northern regions of ancient Moab. All right, that brings us to verse 7 and to Chemosh. Chemosh will go off into exile. Who is Chemosh? Yes, he's the national god of the Moabite nation. Okay, and he's a god of war who demands child sacrifice. And you even have an incident of the king of Moab offering his own son. It's actually Misha in this case in Second Kings three twenty six and twenty seven. <clears throat> he burns him in the fire. So um, this uh, horrific god of the Moabites who required. Uh, infant sacrifice or child sacrifice uh, will go off into exile, and rightfully so. Is he, is he under the name of that God uh, addressing the Moabite people? Chemosh is not a God. So I mean, he can go into exile. Unless no. People are <laughs> identified with him. Yeah, well, well, in other words, he's, go- he's going to be uh, banished, okay? And he's going to disappear into captivity. Uh, it's the idea of God's going to banish Chemosh from history. Okay, the priests that worship him are going to be are going to be banished into Egypt. They're going to disappear. The nation of Moab will eventually disappear, at least in terms of an independent power, uh, shortly after the Babylonian era. So this this is a reference to the fact that God is going to destroy or banish this worship, this idolatrous worship. Now, in verse 13, he mentions Bethel. Moab will be ashamed of Chemosh, as the house of Israel will be ashamed of Bethel. Well, where was Bethel? Well, it was in Israel. If you go back to map number 104, if you can thread your way back through your pile of maps, (laughs) you notice Bethel just north of Jerusalem. All right, now why is Jeremiah talking about what uh, about the shame of Bethel? Very good. Jeroboam the first erected a golden calf at Bethel. Where else did he erect a golden calf? Bethel and no. Notice your map. Okay, you look at Bethel, which is in the south of the nation of Israel. 
and then look directly to the north to Dan, just above Mayaka. You see Dan in the, Dan, D-A-N in the north? See where Tyre is? Go directly east. Okay, you see Dan? All right, now those were the northern and southern, shall I say, border cities or entry cities to the nation of Israel. So what Jeroboam the first did was he put a golden calf at the north, put a golden calf at the south. Why did he do it? So they wouldn't go down to Jerusalem. Okay? Not only because he didn't want the tax money flowing. You see, he, he, he didn't want this... He, he, he was like all the governors today. He didn't want that internet sales tax to go out of his out of his uh, country, out of his state, right? So you're going to tax it whether it's going anywhere. So no, 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 you're going to not take that money away. But also, he didn't want the loyalty of the worshippers or the religious people in Israel going down to Jerusalem. So he kind of put a, a calf at both ends in order to uh, bless the nation with idolatry. All right, so that's the reference, the meaning of the reference there. It was a shame to Israel as Chemos is a shame to Moab. Now, in uh, going back to that map 128 that uh, we had before uh, we looked at the location of Bethel and Dan, You'll see uh, Devon, which is the capital of Moab, right in the center of the map. And that's where the Moabite stone was discovered in 1868. Devon was the capital of the nation of Moab. In verse 20, he talks about the Arnon. Now, you'll see that the Arnon River is just below Devon, and it empties into the Dead Sea. It is the traditional, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, midpoint uh, river of the city of Moab, and the brook Zered is the southern border, the border between, you'll notice, Moab and Edom. Now, verses 21 to 24 have a series of names, all locations unnamed, unknown today. They've never been located Verse 26 mentions Edom's, Moab's rather, besetting sin. He has become arrogant toward the Lord. Okay, his besetting sin is arrogance or pride, and he will wallow in his vomit, which leads to degradation, namely being so drunken that he wallows in his vomit, and degradation leads to mockery or derision, so that uh, he will be a laughing stock. Notice the paradigm. See, your arrogance leads to your self-degradation, leads to your derision or mockery. You become a laughing stock. This is, of course, true of people who are falling down drunk. They ultimately become laughing stocks. They're derided and ridiculed uh, <clears throat> because their arrogance, in the sense of their Pride in their addiction or their habit has uh, led them uh, to degrade themselves. But Israel, in verse 27, Israel is a laughing stock or was a laughing stock, was a laughing stock to Moab. When did Moab make Israel a laughing stock? When did Moab mock Israel? And David sends an envoy to the king. That is possible. That is possible. What else? 
more recent, more continuous to Jeremiah. What were the Moabites doing when Nebuchadnezzar was knocking down the walls of Jerusalem? The king of Moab was uh, the king. He uh, killed Gedaliah, so Ishmael. That's the king of Ammon. Yeah, that's the king of Ammon. He's involved in that execution. Okay, but Moab is cheering Nebuchadnezzar on, okay, because Moab has this ancient antipathy to Israel. So, this uh, jeering in verse 27 of the Moabites to the children of Israel is referring probably to the, uh, the grand standards who are uh, hoping that Israel will be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, as in fact it is. Verses 31 and 32 have once again several. Uh, cities which are mentioned, which are unknown uh, to us. We do not know where the location is. We're not doubting the truth of the Word of God. We simply say we don't know where they are. Nobody's discovered the uh, locations. Uh, Verse 34, uh, mixed bag there, some that are known and some that are not. Verses 45 and 46 are quite interesting because they rehearse Balaam's oracle back in Numbers chapter 21 and 24. How is it that Jeremiah can quote from Balaam's oracle in Numbers, applying it to the nation of Moab, almost 900 years later, and it makes sense? You see, this is a very significant piece of scripture insofar as Jeremiah knows that prophecy. And here he actually uses it to emphasize God's judgment against the Moabites. The key is in chapter 24 of Numbers where the destruction of Moab, the one who will crush the forehead of Moab, as is described in that 2417 uh, section of Numbers, uh, a, a verse which reflects verse 45 of chapter 48 of Jeremiah. The one who comes forth to crush the forehead of Moab is a star who shall from Jacob come forth. A star star from Jacob shall come forth. That is a messianic prophecy. Jeremiah is then attaching the Balaam oracle and its messianic title or character to this uh, decline and this demise, this destruction, this passing away of the nation of Moab. Secret then to understanding Balaam's oracle and Jeremiah's use of it is centered in the messianic significance of the prophecy that is given there. Yes, God even spoke messianic truth through a pagan apostate, but he used his mouth, even as he used the mouth of a dumb mule to speak to Balaam, so he used the mouth of Balaam to speak the truth. Now, verse 47 uh, captures a theme 
which you will find in chapter 46, verse 26, when God says he restore the fortunes of Egypt. Chapter 49, verse 6, which we haven't come to, but you can look, he will restore the fortunes of Ammon. And chapter 46, verse 39, where he says he will restore the fortunes of Elam. What is God promising in these passages where he's threatening these nations with judgment and at the same time saying he's going to restore their fortunes? There are two options. First option, these nations which are going to be judged in the days of Jeremiah are going to be revived subsequent to that period. Later on in the history of the Old Testament, particularly in the intertestamental period, these nations may revive and have some kind of political significance. That is certainly true in the case of Egypt when the Ptolemies rose after the death of Alexander the Great. It's true in the case of Moab when after the Maccabees came to power in uh, Jerusalem, Moab also was revived. It's true more or less in Elam and also in Ammon but not with the same kind of precision, that is, we can't identify it with the same kind of precision we can in the case of Moab and Egypt. So, possible that this restoration refers to the wheel of history turning in in several hundred years so that these nations actually become politically significant again. Second option. Is God here saying that in restoring the fortunes of these nations, he's actually going to harvest them or harvest those out of them who will be restored to his favor. Namely, will be blessed with the grace of the forgiveness of their sins and the salvation of their souls. I cannot uh, argue for either one of those options definitively. I can only put them before you and ask you to weigh them Uh, The language is suggestive, particularly when it includes the last days, as it does in verse 47 of chapter 48. Last days is generally generally an eschatological phrase in the Old Testament. That makes me lean towards the fact that the gospel is going to bring believers out of these nations, as in fact it has. It has down through the history of 2,000 years of the church. People in Egypt have been brought to Christ. They've been restored to the favor of God by his grace through the forgiveness of their sins. Same is true of people in what was ancient Moab, is on the trans, on the east side of the Dead Sea. Same thing is true in Iran, which is where Elam, ancient Elam was. There are people in Iran that have been converted to Christ. Same is true in the region of the Ammonites. For, for instance, in Jordan today, there are Christians, a very small Christian community, but nonetheless, there are Christians in Jordan, which is the location of the nation of Ammon. All right, so it is conceivable that that, that is what is being uh, prophesied here. Um, my, my problem there is that I would like to see a more specific New Testament uh, uh, quid pro quo, in other words, correspondence. Uh, uh, there are uh, Edomites at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So there is one group here that seems to be present there and hears Peter's sermon. Were there others uh, not listed there, possibly? But, um, you know, I'm I'm, uh, 
I'd like to believe that this language is the language of uh, of gospel grace, but I'm not sure. And so uh, I leave you with the historical option or with the gospel option. Uh, you didn't pay any money, so you can take your choices. Do <laughs> you have any questions that you'd like to raise? Uh, this is covering a lot of territory. I acknowledge that, and we're going to cover a lot more next week as we do 49 to 51. Uh, and then we'll have one week left, so we will uh, we will finish Jeremiah in two weeks. The significance is in the Senate that these judgments upon these nations coincide with the judgment upon Judah. Yes, it, it is a retributive response to their oppression of the people of God. It is not only that, uh, you're also hinting at the fact that there are nations which are evil in their own right, and they have, uh, have refused the word of God, and they've uh, worshipped idols, etc., and they've corrupted themselves in his sight. <clears throat> yes, the, but the, the specifics have to do with the interface, as you, as you observe, the interface between these nations and Judah. Right. They were all, uh, they were all troublemakers toward the people. Exactly, exactly. They're all irritations. <laughs> to the nation of Judah. All right, well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we realize that when it comes to judgment, there is none of us that could stand. And none of us is worthy of anything other than your condign wrath. We acknowledge that the sin that so easily besets us is that which we most desperately need removed. And that's the reason we've come to Christ. We've come to the one who is the fulfillment of the antithesis of judgment, namely the salvation of those who deserve condemnation. Consequently, Lord, we pray for our world. We pray for a world which lies under condemnation because of its evil and sinfulness, And we ask that the word of God may not go without return. It may go with fruit and benefit even in this day of uh, darkness and discouragement and instability. That the, the glorious power of the Holy Spirit might equip the servants of the good news throughout all this world to be bold, to be confident, and to be equipped with that which will bring uh, redemption to the heart of those who hear. We thank you for the reports of people in Muslim lands hearing the gospel through the radio and on airwaves and so on and turning to Jesus Christ. And we pray for the rich growth and maturity of them and that indeed their hearts might be knit to the Lord of life and not death. We thank you for all those places where even in pagan lands of animism and idolatry and shamanism, there are people being turned away from uh, from those practices of witchcraft and superstition to the living God and to the resurrected Lord of life. Bless the work of the Church of Christ, Lord, we pray. Bless it until your Son returns in glory, for we wait eagerly for his uh, uh, coming again and expectantly uh, treasuring the riches that he has poured out upon us and thanking you for the opportunity to see those riches laid out before us in the words of the prophet Jeremiah. We ask your blessing then upon 
our lives and we pray for the health of those whom we know and love who struggle with uh, disease and sickness and with the frailty of old age. Encourage and strengthen them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.